Are you craving discussions about the past without the ego? You're in the right spot. Here, humility and engaging conversations reign supreme. These are stories that leave a mark. This is the Tattooed Historian Show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week we have a topic that is really near and dear to my heart, which is body modification and tattoos. I'm speaking this week with Dr. Marin Odell about her book, Under the Skin, Tattoos, Scalps, and the Contested Language of Bodies in Early America. This is a fascinating book. I really enjoyed it. It's from UPenn Press, and they sent it to me knowing that the tattoo historian should read something about tattoos and history, obviously. And this goes back all the way to European colonization in the New World, and I'm really, really excited to hear your feedback on this topic because this is something really different for us here on the pod. I hope you're listening to this season and enjoying it. If you haven't already, uh, please slap that follow button or subscribe button wherever you are. Rate the show. Let me know how you enjoy it. And don't forget to follow me on all of the socials. And now, without further ado, here is Dr. Marin Odell discussing her book, Under the Skin, Tattoos, Scalps, and the Contested Language of Bodies in Early America. Marin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work, uh, your fantastic book, which I still have my copy here, and I put <laughs> plenty of pencil marks in it uh, because when you're heavily tattooed and you get a book about tattooing, you put a, a lot of marks in it. Uh, Under the Skin, Tattoos, Scalps, and Contested Language of Bodies in Early America, published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Shout out to my former home, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and welcome, Marin. It really means a lot to me that you're here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this. This is really fun. And um, similar shout out to my, my former state of Pennsylvania. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Where are you from, Pennsylvania? I'm actually, okay, so correction, I'm actually okay. from West Virginia, but I went to college uh, okay. at Swarthmore, so outside of yeah. Philadelphia. So I'm sure. very fond of Philadelphia and has spent some good years there. Great. I'm originally from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which is just west of Gettysburg. That's what I tell everybody because people have heard of Gettysburg. <laughs> so. I'm pretty sure I've been through Chambersburg. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, it's not much to see. You blank and you miss it, but it's a great place. Good place to grow up. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there are days I miss it, but uh, I saw that Pennsylvania made an appearance in the book and I, I want to go over that later, but, uh, Marin, I have to know because there aren't many books out on historical tattooing pre 1900, let's say, uh, where did the idea for this book come from and what was your research process like for it? That's a great question. Um, the, where the idea came from is there's probably two versions of this story, but I can say that the the sort of narrative version that I often tell and and actually you know started actually when I was at Swarthmore. Now that I'm thinking about it as an undergrad, um, 
I was doing an undergraduate thesis and it was not about any of this, but it was about um, Pennsylvania's colonial history. I was doing um, a thesis about Quaker leadership in the colony and their relationship with indigenous communities. And I had the good fortune to spend part of my summer between my junior and senior year of college um, doing some research at the library company and the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So they're in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, so I was I was very young. I was I was a college student and I was looking for these things about these Quakers. And I ended up pulling a book sort of just inadvertently um, at the Historical Society one afternoon and reading it. And it was just it was called something like some of the most interesting outrages committed by the Indians. And so it was, you know, framed as very much this narrative of here are all these sort of horrific war stories. Mm-hmm. Um, very lurid. It was very much anti-native. Mm-hmm. And I was reading it and kind of perusing these things. And there was a story in it about um, a Lenape man who was scalped by colonists and who he survived. And this was just this very, um, again, somewhat blasé way of, it was sort of put in this in this book, um, gestured to in a couple pages, and then it moved on to some other story. Hmm. And I read that, and I was just shocked and startled on a number of fronts. I had never realized that people could survive scalping. Um, so that was new to me. I was startled by the way that it was a story about violence against a native person. And then of course it's in this book that's supposedly kind of documenting all of these things against native people about like how, how they're the terrible aggressors and all these conflicts. And I, I kind of just kept thinking about that story a lot and was it, it, again, it didn't have anything to do with my thesis. So I kind of set it aside. Um, but then when I was working on my doctorate at NYU and, you know, starting to kind of hunt around and think about a dissertation topic, I realized that I kind of kept having that in the back of my head. And I kept thinking that there was something there about body modification, about scars, about stories. Um, I was really interested in the ways that end up, people end up having to kind of narrate their scars. And like people say, well, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. And scalping survivors, I think, you know, would be a really obvious space of that. It's a very distinctive thing that people are probably not going to mistake for some other sort of injury. It immediately tells you that this is a person who has been involved in some sort of violent conflict. And if it's on a settler body, it's some it's a cross-cultural conflict. And so that was the way that I found my way into this book initially. And then as I started brainstorming and and thinking about it further, tattoos felt like a very obvious space. I mean, they're very different, Mark, and we can talk about that. Hmm. But it immediately became clear to me that in terms of something very visible, very tangible, and very immediate, Europeans are looking at indigenous bodies, and they're they're seeing tattoos. And so they have a lot to say about them. Hmm. What was that early contact like for settlers in the what we call the new world or uh, some people call a new world uh what was that contact like for them when they originally see these bodies that have these markings on them i was really struck by um 
some of the very earliest reports that are in these early modern texts, one of the things that's really interesting, and you're probably familiar with this as the tattooed historian, um, tattoo, of course, is, a, is not an English word, um, or at least not in the way that we use it to think now about ink under the skin. And so it really doesn't enter English until after the Cook voyages in the, you know, very end of the 18th century. Um, and it's coming from Polynesia, from Tatao. But it's really interesting because a lot of my book is, is way before that. And so it means that you can't go into an archive and say, I'd like to like, you know, do a digital word search for tattoo. Tattoo is not in most of these early modern books. And so one of the things that I was really struck by is all the beautiful and really interesting metaphors and analogies that these writers and, and you know, explorers and colonists and thinkers and artists are having to kind of gesture to because they don't have a, one specific word for tattoo. So um, you repeatedly see people say that people's skin is embroidered or that it is... Um, they use a lot of words that are about like preparing parchment to be used for art. So they talk about pouncing, um, which is where you'd use sort of a pricked preparation and then you, you, you kind of rub um, chalk dust all over it. So you can kind of trace an outline. They say, you know, that it's raised or scarred or marked. Um, sometimes they talk about it like it's a type of fabric. So they'll say that their skin is damasked, you know, that it looks like damask or leather. Um, so those are sort of the things that show up and they're, and they're always so interesting to see because you see people kind of straining to be like, what do I, what do I compare this to? Mm -hmm. I love the idea of just throwing people off and saying my skin's embroidered just to see what they, <laughs> see what they would say instead of saying yeah. I'm tattooed. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, there you go. For someone who wished they could have the moniker, the tattooed historian, you can go with embroidered historian. The that's, embroidered that's, historian. That's, that's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, how hard did that make your search, Marin, for those sources? Because I really, you know, uh, when you do an advanced search in some of these things, and you're like, I want this and this and this. Does that make a, the search even more complicated for you? Because you don't know what each person called these kinds of things. Yeah, it. It definitely did. And it's one of these things where, you know, my book is, is now out, it is published. And uh, you always have this idea that you, you, you have the fantasy or hope that it's going to be completely comprehensive. And I'm going to find every example and I'm going to have them all nailed down. And, you know, I have to laugh because I was recently... Um, I was actually recently reviewing an, an article submitted for a journal um, that, you know, hopefully will be out in a, in a while and I think is going to be a great addition to this field. And it was just really interesting because I'm reading this person's work and they mention a source that has two runaway ads uh, from New England where these two soldiers are mentioned as having Indian marks on their legs. Mm. And I was, you know, sitting there in great admiration of the work I was reading, but I was also kicking myself going, mm. oh oh, how did I not know about this? You know, so I think the thing is, there's always going to be stuff that you're going to miss. And, um, but it does, it, it did make for a challenging research process. I, I kind of had to cast a really wide net and essentially think about genre to, you know, kind of as where to start. I was looking at travel narratives. I was looking at captivity narratives. Um, 
soldiers ended up being a really good resource for me. So, I mean, I'm kind of finding types of writers or types of writing and then just having to do a deep dive and be like, okay, I hope that some of these physical descriptions have something. What did uh, these early settlers from Europe, when they come into contact with indigenous peoples and they see this, are they seeing their tattoos, as we call them now, as a communication method? Are they seeing them as a, a, a mark of ownership to a particular group? Or, or are they seeing them as all kinds of different things? I was going to say, yeah, see all of the above, but yes, mm. exactly. Um, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, my first chapter in this book is very interested in the question of, for especially for those very, very early uh, writers and observers for some of the very earliest English voyages, uh, how they interpret tattoos. And one of the things that I argue in that chapter is that they're really interested in writing. And, you know, in part, perhaps very, very obviously, writing is one of those technologies that Europeans are sort of priding themselves on and, and kind of going about in the world with an insistence on how writing elevates them over a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And so, they're looking for writing and they're often not expecting to find it. But when they do, it's a, I think it's a source of anxiety and a little bit of confusion. And, and one of the things I, I ended up writing about was a number of these authors and artists and observers are very much on the fence about what it means if tattoos are writing. And some of them kind of kind of do come down on that and say, yeah, it, you know, this is a mark that has communicative value. It, it is telling someone something, but I don't know what it is. And that's the part where you can see them get really, really worried because it's mm-hmm. like, well, if I if I'm a literate person and I'm a reader, but I can't read this, then there's a sort of problem of of establishing that that vision of superiority that many of them really want. Um and so, yeah, trying to create these sort of rubrics that are often, like you said, this mark means this person's affiliated with this village or this, or, you know, this ruler, this leader, you know, is the person that they owe allegiance to. And again, one of the things that I found a lot of what I was thinking through in this book, especially with the tattooing portions, was analogy and, and metaphor. And um, a lot of those writers say things like, these are signatures. They tell us, you know, who an individual is. Um, but they often come back to things too, like heraldry. You know, they'll say, this is like a sign or a seal that a lord might have on his ring or on his crest, um, on his shield. And so they're using those sorts of similar images to try to make some some uh, comparisons. Hmm. The subject comes up every time we talk about uh, body modification in general uh, of pain Uh and uh, because it is a painful process to go through to be tattooed or to have some other form of body modification uh, other than scalping, which is a whole different kind of pain that we'll talk about later. Um, I still have friends who tattoo who say, I don't want you to have any numbing cream. I want you to go through this rite of passage. Hmm. Uh, do we see that in, in this, in the, these early forms as well, where sometimes it's the mark of being a good warrior or being a good soldier to go through the process of having these 
uh, body modifications done? I do think there's a connection there. And and yes, I do try to think a good bit about pain in this book. That was that was one of the kind of key elements that for me ended up linking what I think are otherwise fairly disparate marks, you know, because I, I got that question a lot early in the dissertation process. I got it later on in the book process of how are these things connected? They seem really different. <laughs> mm, mm. And they are really different, but they are united by pain. And um a painful sort of intimacy between the person giving it and person receiving it. And um, I do think that with tattooing in particular, you know, a lot of anthropologists have, have even theorized that that's like you were saying with some of your friends, that's part of the point um, that that is part of the process. And I would say that in this book, partly I, I was looking at a lot of soldiers and soldiers ended up being a particularly good resource um, because they are people who are moving back and forth between communities. And I think because like you're saying, they're people who often have a lot at stake in performing a certain type of martial masculinity. Hmm. Um, they want to be manly. They want to be perceived as brave and tattooing is a way to do that. And so I have a lot of sources talking about, like you, like you said, um, there's one I'm thinking of where he says something like they praised me because they said I took them, took the mark like a man, you know, mm -hmm. so that's very important in his version of events. Like, that's how I know I kind of, I won, <laughs> mm -hmm. I won at getting right. tattooing, right? I, I did, the, right. I did it correctly today. And, um, I, I will say as another detail that kind of goes along with that, that I think is just, again, very, very interesting as a, a sort of metaphorical gesture one of the most common inks that is reported in a lot of my sources, especially in the 18th century, especially a little bit towards the, the later side of things, is gunpowder. A lot of people use gunpowder to make a sort of dark blue-gray ink um, for tattoos. And one of the things that I that I argue in the book is that that's not an accident. I mean, it's partly they all have it, right? They're all if you if you are in a military encampment, there is gunpowder, it is available. So it's an easy pragmatic resource. Um, but I think that the metaphorical gesture of putting gunpowder under your skin is, is really crucial. It is marking your body for war. It is showing your willingness to endure pain. And it's, it's this sort of literally explosive material that you're then carrying around. So I think there's a lot there. Yeah, I, I read through that. And I had heard of similar things previously in other works uh, a long time ago, and then I read your work. And obviously, the 21st century me is is like, wow, I could get infected really quickly, you know. And I don't want to yep. even touch that subject, you know. Uh, that, mm -hmm. That's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, I don't want to just touch on tattooing, even though that's part of my my uh, you know tattoo historian thing. Uh, but I really. I'm interested as well in, in the scalping uh, portion of your book, because many of us see this in popular culture in movies and mm -hmm. we're, we're exposed to it that way. And then we think of, Oh, how horrible this was. And then we move on to the next thing. Uh, but there's always that kind of uh, fear in the back of your head. Am I going to see this in this new Western or whatever the case may be? Because that's what we see in the 21st century, how we see it. Um, can you talk about 
that issue of scalping as far as being a message or a way of showing that you have overcome your enemy, especially in the case of, I believe her name was Hannah Dustin. That that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So Hannah Dustin is, is this um, Massachusetts colonist who I sort of start one of my chapters with um, sort of famously or infamously uh, is taken captive during one of the innumerable conflicts between English colonies in New England um, and a number of indigenous nations kind of across the Northeast. And she escapes her captors and kills and scalps them and takes the scalps um, back home to Massachusetts where she receives a pretty substantial reward from the colonial legislature. And um, I was very interested in, like you said, that there's a sort of ubiquity in American pop culture. And actually one of the things that I'm tracing in the book is the ways that that are sort of the origins of that. Like I was, I was very interested in that doesn't come out of nowhere in the 20th century and John Wayne movies. It is coming from 19th century um, kind of penny dreadful style, you know, these very lurid uh, frontier accounts. Mm -hmm. And it's going all the way back into the 18th, you know, and 17th century as this, like you said, such a sort of shocking or striking act of violence that it becomes, um, a kind of useful stand-in for anything else about war. It can be the thing that's repeatedly gestured to. And one of the things that I think is, is again, very striking and, and something that I ended up spending most of my analytical energies on in the, in the sections about scalping is, is that, of course, colonists adopt it. And so even as a lot of their rhetoric and energy is around framing this as um, historically and exclusively an indigenous act of war and, and that that's sort of in, repeated and insisted upon all of the sources are showing that that's immediately not true um colonists are using it immediately and um so someone like dustin becomes a sort of interesting space of looking at that she is made into this sort of folk hero I think, again, in part because she is a woman. And so there's a way that her story gets held up as this sort of um, an angry mother seeking revenge. So she's this victim who can kind of rewrite a story. But for me, I I kind of kept going back to to the fact that they're getting paid money for them. And that changes also, like you said, the sort of meaning behind the act. So an act that can carry a lot of symbolic energy. And it certainly does for indigenous nations too, to be clear. I mean, people are using this as um, an act that I think has a lot of spiritual and cultural significance, but then for the colonies, it's got economic, like it's got actual money value behind um, human body parts that are getting exchanged. And that to me is very, very telling that that economic value and that narrative value are are kind of running alongside each other, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yes. Where does that economic policy come from uh, in some cases? Where does this derive from in the the eastern seaboard? You know, I think it's coming out of obviously much older traditions. Certainly, you know, there are plenty of bounties that are offered in England for various, you know, criminals. You can have something where somebody will have money alive or dead, right? Capture Mm -hmm. this person and bring him in. Um, I think it's an interesting 
kind of uneven transition. Um, one of the things that I was I found and was sort of writing about was the English are frequently trying to ask for other items and don't get them. And so then they want scalps. So they want um, heads. And again, I think it's a certain different cultural resonance, putting a head on a pike. I mean, again, this is a gruesome topic, so I apologize in advance to your listeners, but putting a head on a pike is a very English act Mm -hmm. and, you know, has a long history. Um, Executed criminals are displayed on London Bridge. Um, Cutting off the head of a king or a ruler is this very, very symbolic act. And so they're often asking for heads and indigenous allies are bringing scalps or in some cases, things like severed hands. And so you see the English, I think, fairly rapidly shifting course and saying, oh, okay, like, well, that's what we want. Um, And realizing that it has a different meaning and a different power to their allies. Hmm. But yeah, I think, I think there's something that's really striking about how it becomes a sort of um, hybridized practice because of the, again, listing these bounty values. The other thing that I actually compare it to in the book as well is wolf bounties. So, and and some other scholars have written about that. And I think, you know, it's this really interesting space of overlap where the colonies have a lot of laws around pest control and what they consider sort of eradication of, of um, predators. And so there's laws on the books about bringing in wolves, you know, a a dead wolf you can get so much money for. And they pretty much repurpose a lot of that language around scalps. Hmm. Some people have asked uh, in history classes that I've either sat in on or led, they have asked if this idea of colonists using scalping was a way to what they say, get back at indigenous persons during conflict. Uh, Did you see that in that case, or is it more just uh, people adapting to the environment that they're in at the time and making it economic or sending a message in that way? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's, Mm -hmm impossible to avoid the symbolic resonance of the act and so it is not it's not something that somebody does by accident or you know inadvertently um if somebody has to stop in a battle or in this moment of you know killing somebody or attacking somebody to do this then it's a very deliberate choice Mm -hmm. and so i do think that it increasingly comes to be articulated by colonists and and sort of in their self-imagining and the way they understand it Mm -hmm. as an act of revenge or a way of sort of being on a similar playing field, um, I guess. I I certainly try in the book to take issue with that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that that's a story that people are insisting on about how they are like I say in the book, a lot of what I'm interested in this is is sort of what I call settler logics. So what are the stories that people are telling themselves uh, in order to justify um, their attempts at expansion and, you know, taking over land? And one of the very, very obvious ways that people do that is by having a story of being a victim. Mm-hmm. And, and so actually um, scalping survivors, especially, 
become super useful for that because they can be sort of gestured to as this ultimate sort of propaganda of look at this person, look at how they've suffered. Um, and then we can kind of think about this severed body part, this hair that is off somewhere else in some other community and in some other space. And it becomes this hugely resonant thing. Um, actually, I would say the later you get, the more powerful it is. And so I write a little bit about this, that by the early American Republic, by the, by the time of independence, um, Americans are very obsessed with that. And they're very obsessed with that sort of story of, again, revenge. Um, it's always uh, a tit for tat situation. It's always about them being in the sort of responsive space, even when, if you're looking at what's actually happening in many cases, it, that's not clear or they are in fact the aggressors, um, especially in spaces like Tennessee and Kentucky, where these people are sort of pushing in the early Republic. And then they're writing constantly about, oh, everyone, you know, there's so many scalping survivors here. Hmm. That's the trap that uh, some students get into when they read some primary sources uh, about this very thing, where we see it as uh, someone from that century saying, oh, they started it and we're just doing it in return. When in actuality, it's kind of like, well, did they or did you, were you reacting to something else and you decided to go overboard or, or whatever the case may be and understanding the source and uh, that's that's something that I try to get across to some of the people I TA in seminar is, you know, look mm -hmm. at this course and who's writing it and see if that message sticks or not. Um, how was uh, Pennsylvania a little bit different than, and that's not just because it's my home state, but Pennsylvania <laughs> seemed to be a little bit different, especially before the Seven Years War. There seemed to be a different attitude towards uh, uh, interactions with indigenous populations, but this idea of scalping or or having these bounties out and such mm -hmm. this is something i am a little bit um i'm interested in i touch on in the book and actually continuing to work on what i hope will be a standalone article at some point i think yeah pennsylvania is fascinating and it is fascinating precisely um because of both the reality of like like you're saying it does have a sort of different relationship to diplomacy and conflict with indigenous nations than a lot of its surrounding colonial neighbors um, well into the 18th century. But also because it's sort of that's its self-conception, right? I think that Pennsylvania truly is working to uphold certain Quaker visions around nonviolence and, and sort of mitigating conflict. It's also true that it desperately wants to tell itself a story about how it is not like those other colonies that just go immediately to violence. And so one of the things I think is so striking is that most of the Anglo colonies at some point adopt scout bounties. Um, New England goes through a great many of them. So, you know, if you look at Massachusetts Bay, if you look at Plymouth, Connecticut, um, all of those spaces they're just kind of churning through them, you know, in some cases it's almost automatic renewal every legislative session or something. Other spaces, it's a little bit more targeted. You see stuff in Virginia and then further South, you see other, you know, mid-Atlantic colonies sometimes. Um, but Pennsylvania is very slow to adopt it. 
and it's very contested. And yes, it's in the Seven Years' War, um, running into some of those sort of debates internally from the colony about who has the upper hand here and will nonviolence win the day, and it doesn't, you know. And so they end up going through a couple of different bounties um, in the Seven Years' War, and then actually also one during the American Revolution. When you were doing this research, Marin, uh, did did a character or a people stand out to you more than any other, or they they had the best uh, record keeping, or the, the stories were just fascinating when you ran into them? Uh, was there a kind of moment when you were doing this research? Oh, that's a great question because I ended up. I feel like hopscotching all over the place a little bit for this book. Um, you know, I'm looking at, again, talking about what we were just talking about earlier about trying to find sources and feeling like I ended up having to cast a really wide net in order to feel um, like I would have any shot at getting the things I wanted to find. So in some ways, if I had done maybe a deep dive on, like you said, just Pennsylvania or just uh, New England, maybe I would have some different ways of thinking about this. I will say, I think I touch on this only very briefly in the book, but it's actually a story that I really think is fascinating is, um, oh gosh, there's several, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'll just say that uh, there is an, a collector, uh, and this is during the, the revolution, um, right before and then during, uh, Pierre-Eugène de Cimetière, who's living in Philadelphia. So again, this is a Pennsylvania story. So again, I am perhaps biased. Um, who is, is starts one of the, the kind of first American museums um, in some ways, and, you know, at first museums that's open to the public. It's, it's a sort of his private collection, but he does eventually make it so that people can pay a small amount and come see it. And one of the things I really thought was fascinating is that we know that in 1782, there is a scalp that's taken by um, a settler named Adam Poe in, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, Poe is in a fight with an unnamed, you know, in all these sources, an unnamed Native man somewhere near the Ohio River. Poe kills him and scalps him, and he sends it to the Pennsylvania Executive Council. So this is that that revolution, mm-hmm. that revolutionary era bounty that I'm talking about. Um, he sends it to this sort of interim revolutionary government for a reward. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that in Ducimetier's kind of collection records about all the different things he's got, he, he mentions receiving this scout because essentially the council paid out money and then they didn't know what to do with this item and they didn't want it. And so they kind of just transferred it to him like, put this in your cabinet of curiosities. And, and, you know, he describes it in this great physical detail, um, you know, that it's braided, that there's beads, that there's, you know, so there's all this sort of record. And um, I guess in some ways I'm, I'm telling you this story and it's not about an individual, but it's about an individual object because Mm -hmm. I think that it's very evocative to me that he has one of the first museums it's like a lot of other museums in that period, it's art, it's natural history, you know, it's bones, it's things in jars, it's seashells, it's coins, it's things that he thinks are sort of military objects that are interesting. And it's a bunch of indigenous things. And almost all of the indigenous things are acquired through settler violence. It's also stuff um, 
some of the stuff he has is stuff that's taken by soldiers during the Sullivan campaign in Haudenosaunee territories in upstate New York. So American soldiers who are going through Iroquois villages and, and sacking them, and they take items and they give them to do cimetière. And um, I think what's really interesting about it is that we know that after Ducimetier's death, a lot of his collection is purchased by Charles Wilson Peel, the artist, who also has a museum. Mm -hmm. And then we know that a lot of Peel's collection is in turn, after his death, a lot of his estate is published or is, is purchased by P.T. Barnum. And so I am so fascinated and have no way, of course, of proving this by the idea that this very tangible object produced by violence is, is sort of going through these hands and through these different spaces of public display and ends up possibly all the way in Barnum's collection in mid 19th century New York. Um, but then of course, Barnum's uh, collection is destroyed in a fire. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know, and, 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 you know, records about even what was in it. We don't have any way of tangibly saying, yes, he definitely had this scalp. Right. But so I'm I'm always kind of haunted by that, and I'm thinking a lot about those those specific stories of those items that are kind of moving through the world. Hmm. So is uh is this book just the start of like what's going to come from you as far as this is concerned? Because you've already said that there may be uh, an article out on Pennsylvania in the future, or or in this issue, or or something else. What's next for you that this has already come out? What's the uh, next project or the next phase of this project? Well, um, it'd be so nice to think <laughs> when you said is it the start of makes it sound like it's going to be this wonderful like trilogy of books, um, I'm, which I, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid it's not, <laughs> or at least I don't have any plans for that at this time. Oh. Um, I do have that article in mind where I am thinking about kind of more specifically how colonial ideas about kind of just war or the laws of war mm. are grappling with that idea about bounties and, and looking at Pennsylvania as a specific case study. Um, but no, for now, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm going to take a little break. I, I have said to other people in the past, I don't think, I don't think tattoos stop finding you. So I mm. suspect that they're going to continue to be a major part of my interests going forward um, they do have a way now that I'm looking for them, like that needle in the haystack thing, right? Uh, they do have a way of popping up in, in the archives. So I'm sure they'll keep, keep appearing. I enjoyed the pun needle in a haystack. <laughs> I figured uh, if anyone was going to catch it, it would be, you I'm, so. <laughs> I'm paying attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of like when you, when you find a subject that's really obscure or something that's different, it tends to pop up in your search or something randomly and it's, it's there uh getting tattooed is another thing it's kind of like you know okay i'm i gotta get one soon because i haven't been finding one that i've mm -hmm. enjoyed lately so yeah mm -hmm. it's a little bit of addictive thing not only research but also actually getting tattooed so uh it really fits hand in hand with that uh but i really really did enjoy this book marin uh because i'm thank you i'm, just, I'm getting sold on early stuff now and meaning early american and uh and british empire kind of history because i'm usually a 21st century or excuse me a 20th century guy uh but i'm really fascinated by this period and to understand the longevity of body modification is just fascinating and trying to learn more so when i saw this book i'm like i gotta read it this is this is fantastic 
And uh, I'm so happy that you had the time to come on and, and speak with me today about the book. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. I think we've we've jumped all over the map, I'm sure, but uh, hopefully it touches on at least a few of the things in this book. Oh yeah, we don't want to give it all away. We want people to. We <laughs> want everyone right. listening to get this book. Uh, but yeah, we did. We did jump a, from uh, portion to portion of the book and and around. But I think it really gave people a general understanding of what they're going to see. And also, I know there are some people out there who are going to be listening or watching who are into piercings, and some are into tattoos. And other people want to understand a history of violence in the new world and and beyond. So. I think jumping around really will help someone. At least I hope so. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And actually to say, I think there are a lot of other scholars, especially some cool up and coming young scholars who are doing some great work on things like scarification, mm. piercing, branding. So there is a rich uh, vein of, of material, I think, on the history of body modification. So hopefully your viewers and your listeners, you know, you'll have other you'll have other scholars on here soon who are doing also cool things in that field. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. Thank you again, Marin, for your time. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. 